This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month I'm detailing cases where parents included their children in murder plots. This time I have a case for you that you won't soon forget. Teresa Cross Knorr was a mother of six who craved attention and financial security from the men in her life. Married four times, Teresa Knorr torpedoed every relationship with her jealousy and need for control, even while she carried on affairs with other men. Unwilling to acknowledge her part in these failed relationships, she blamed her children, the only people in her life who are powerless to escape her wrath. This bizarre story is not for the faint of heart. While I won't try to shock you with the details unnecessarily, some are pivotal to the case, so be forewarned. This is the last chapter in the series, A Family Affair, the case of murderous mom, Teresa Cross Knorr. Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross Knorr is 77 years old and still incarcerated at the California Institution for Women in Chino, California. She is serving two consecutive life sentences for the horrific torture murders of her two daughters, 20-year-old Sheila and 17-year-old Susan. This case is particularly disturbing because Teresa's other four children either participated in their sister's murders or knew about them when they occurred. And yet, Teresa Knorr's crimes didn't come to light until almost a decade later. The only way to tell this story and paint a picture of how it unfolded is to start at the beginning. Teresa Francine Cross was born on March 14, 1946. Her parents were Swanee Gay and Jim Cross. Teresa was nicknamed Jimmy after her father. She was the youngest of two daughters born to the couple. Her older sister was named Rosemary. Swanee, called by her middle name, Gay, had been married once before to a man named Harry Tapp, who died in 1939. They had two children together, William Hart Tapp, who was called Bill, and Clara. Gay met Jim Cross in 1942. They married when she was 34 and he was 37. Rosemary was born in 1944, and Teresa, Jimmy, in 1946, when her mother was 41. The family resided in the suburbs of Sacramento, California. Teresa's parents worked outside of the home to provide for their family. Jim Cross worked at a local dairy, driving a milk truck, and later worked his way up to assistant cheesemaker. Gay worked in a pencil-making factory. Just a short note, Teresa, Jimmy, Francine Cross, Knorr, would go by many names and variations of these names over the years. I'll call her Teresa in this episode to make things less confusing. She'll later have a daughter with the same name, but she'll go by Terry, so I think we can keep things straight. Clara, Gay's oldest daughter who is Teresa and Rosemary's half-sister, would become a surrogate mother to the girls while her parents worked. Clara missed school quite a bit to care for her younger sisters. She also worked in a restaurant beginning at the age of 14, to help the family financially. As mature and responsible as Clara was, her brother Bill was the opposite. Bill Hart Tapp was a hellraiser who was often in trouble from the time he was a boy. Bill was the only male child in the family. Jim Cross only aspired to have sons, but ended up with three daughters. Bill was spoiled and allowed to do as he pleased as a result. Bill Hart Tapp grew into a sociopath who committed armed robberies, kidnappings, and worse and spent much of his adult life behind bars. It would be telling that Teresa would later name one of her sons after her notorious half-brother. As spoiled and coddled as Bill was by his father, so Teresa was by her mother. Her parents had clear favorites among their children, and Teresa would keep this tradition going in her own life. Teresa was Gay's favorite, a fact that her mother openly admitted to with family and friends. She called Teresa her beautiful daughter, And she was a striking child. With dark curly hair, big blue eyes, and a petite frame, 
she looked like a porcelain doll. Still, Teresa was a jealous child who needed constant praise and admiration from her mother. She boasted her preferred status over her sister Rosemary, and was spoiled and selfish according to those who knew her. When Teresa was still a child, her father was diagnosed with Parkinson's. He underwent an unsuccessful brain surgery that left him debilitated and unable to work. His disease caused him to become depressed and angry. His condition worsened until he could not walk or care for himself. As an adult, Teresa would become his caretaker. Teresa's mother became the family's primary breadwinner. She spent long hours at work, while Clara, and then Rosemary, took on the responsibility of caring for Jim Cross, the house, and the children. Gay was diabetic and very overweight. In 1961, she suffered a fatal heart attack due to congestive heart failure. She was 53. Teresa was with Gay when she died after collapsing onto the floor during a shopping trip. 15-year-old Teresa was devastated by the loss of her mother. Although Rosemary was still in high school, Clara had since left home to get married, so it fell upon her to take over her mother's duties, working and caring for the family. With Gay's income gone, the Crosses lost their home and had to move into a rental in North Highlands. Rosemary met a man named Floyd Norris, and they fell in love. She doubled up on her schoolwork to graduate early and married the 22-year-old carpenter. She left home and moved into a trailer with her new husband in Rio Linda. Rosemary, always bright and mature beyond her years, was hired as a bookkeeper for the state of California. She and Floyd had two sons. Teresa would be jealous of her older sister all her life, and they grew distant, barely speaking as adults. Now the care of her disabled father fell to Teresa. Unwilling to become the workhorse as both her sisters had been, Teresa had another plan. She was described as boy-crazy from the time she was a preteen. She knew how to use her looks to get what she wanted from boys. Friends said she was obsessed with sex from her early teens. She was always talking about it, her friend Janet Kelso said. She seemed to know everything. Teresa decided to use her looks and sex appeal to land a husband who'd take care of her and provide for her financially. She soon met 22-year-old Clifford Clyde Sanders. He saw the pretty brunette as she walked home from North Highlands High School and stopped to chat her up. Teresa flirted with him and agreed to go out on a date. They ended up having multiple heavy makeout sessions in his truck, but Teresa didn't let him go all the way until he promised to marry her. They quickly married, and Teresa dropped out of high school in her junior year. Her father had to sign a form permitting the union, as Teresa was only 16. She was soon pregnant, and in 1963 gave birth to their first child, a son they named Howard. Cliff was working as a day laborer when he met Teresa, but joined the Carpenters' Union soon after they wed. Now with a steady job, benefits, and a pension, he could provide for Teresa and his son. But the couple had a volatile relationship. Cliff liked to drink in bars, and although he wasn't what you'd call handsome, Teresa was jealous of any woman who might catch his eye. Was she in love and insecure? Maybe. But it seems more likely that Teresa's jealousy resulted from something else. Primarily because of her past struggles, losing her mother, her home, and her financial security due to her father's illness and then her mother's death. She became controlling over the men in her life whom she feared would leave her, causing her to become destitute. But while Teresa monitored her husband's movements and repeatedly accused him of infidelity, she still craved the attention of other men. She and her husband drank heavily and Teresa enjoyed flirting with men in bars. She frequently cheated on her husband, and they would get into drunken brawls because of their mutual jealousy. Jim Cross was now utterly disabled as a result of Parkinson's disease and moved in with Teresa, Cliff, and his grandson Howard, now one years old. In the summer of 1964, Teresa called the police after a fight with her husband and accused him of assault. However, when the police came to arrest him, she refused to press charges. A few weeks later, on July 6th, Cliff went out drinking to celebrate his 23rd birthday. When he returned home, his wife was angry because he'd gone out without her. They began arguing, and Cliff told her he'd had enough and was leaving her. Teresa was pregnant with her second child, and her husband, aware of her infidelities, said he didn't believe it was his baby. 
In a rage, she grabbed a rifle and shot him in the back as Cliff moved towards the door to go. She ran to a neighbor's house with baby Howard and screamed that she'd shot Cliff. The police were called and upon their arrival, found Clifford Sanders dead from one shotgun blast through the heart. The pregnant mother was arrested and charged with murder. She pled not guilty, claiming self-defense. At her trial, Teresa said her husband was a violent alcoholic. Witnesses said the couple frequently argued and fought, and it sometimes became physical. They described Cliff Sanders as a good-natured guy until he drank too much. In contrast, they said Teresa was bad-natured, possessive, and controlling, whether drunk or sober. But the petite 18-year-old whose pregnancy was just starting to show cut a sympathetic figure with the jury. She was acquitted of the murder charge, even though the prosecutor presented evidence that Cliff Sanders' autopsy showed no evidence of alcohol in his blood and no gunpowder burns on his body, indicating that the fatal shot had occurred from a distance. In September 1964, two months after killing her husband, Teresa Sanders walked free. Teresa Knorr Sanders' second child was born on March 16, 1965. She named her daughter Sheila Gay Sanders. The 18-year-old mother was a widow after shooting and killing her husband, which she claimed was in self-defense. Not long after the baby was born, Teresa was back in the bars looking for husband number two. She soon met Army veteran Estelle Lean Thornsbury. Lee, as he was called, developed paraplegia after a paralyzing accident on the beach while on leave from his military duties. He dove into the surf head first and broke his neck. He lost control of his body below the shoulders and required a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He received a monthly disability check, which allowed him to live comfortably and even to afford a new Pontiac Bonneville, especially retrofitted, so that Lee could drive it with his limited upper body mobility. Lee met the pretty dark-haired young mother of two and was instantly attracted. He let her drive his car around town and gave her money. They moved in together, but Lee soon realized his lover was more of a liability than he'd counted on. In some ways, she took good care of her kids, providing for their physical needs, keeping them clothed, fed, and clean. But emotionally, she was very distant, even cold. It was clear to everyone that she favored her son Howard over her daughter Sheila. Once asked about this, Teresa bluntly said she planned to raise her children like her mother did. Gay had favored her over her sister, and she favored Howard over Sheila. Teresa was a lazy housekeeper. She sat around all day without lifting a finger to clean up after herself or her children. She'd leave Lee to watch the children while she went out drinking in the evenings. Soon, Lee discovered Teresa was cheating on him with other guys. Well, actually, one other guy. Teresa met a younger man and set her sights on him. Robert Bob Knorr was just shy of his 18th birthday and two years younger than Teresa when they met. He had recently become a U.S. Marine and was tall, blonde, blue-eyed, and muscular, the opposite of her wheelchair-bound benefactor. He was also a virgin. Teresa soon turned his head and he fell head over heels for the cute girl who was sexually experienced. In Bob Knorr, she found a wrapped pupil. Lee soon discovered packages of condoms and Teresa's discarded undergarments on the floor of his Pontiac Bonneville. He left their shared rental, but Teresa stayed in the home for a while. When Lee returned to pick up his things, he found the house cleaned out of anything of value and Teresa gone. At first, young Bob had no idea his new girlfriend was already living with the man, had two babies, and had been acquitted of murdering her husband. All he knew was that he had to have her and was shipping off to Vietnam soon. In February of 1966, right before Bob Knorr left to join the war in Vietnam, Teresa told him she was pregnant with his child. Within a few months, Bob was shipped home after being wounded and was reunited with Teresa. They married in July of 1966, and their first child together and Teresa's third, Susan Marlene Knorr, was born two months later. Bob Knorr would later say this of his union with Teresa. From the time we got married, it was pure hell. Before that, it wasn't so bad. But from that point on, it was like once I said, I do, she said, you will. 
Teresa set up house with her new husband, and her father, Jim Cross, moved in soon after. She was collecting her father's retirement check, as well as Social Security checks for her children, Howard and Sheila. She added Bob's paycheck to her monthly income. Teresa had no patience for her small children and often foisted them off to her husband, friends, and neighbors. She yelled and hit them when frustrated or angry, which was often. Those who knew Teresa found her behavior disturbing, particularly towards her infant daughter. She clearly disliked the child, they said. Susan was ignored, neglected, and spanked for perceived infractions by her mother. As a result, the child never smiled or spoke and avoided eye contact. Still, Teresa continued having children, four in all, with Bob Knorr. A year after Susan, William Robert Knorr was born, and 15 months later, Robert Wallace Knorr Jr. was born on the last day of 1968. Teresa was even more jealous and possessive of Bob than she was with her first husband. She kept a close eye on the good-looking Marine. If I ever catch you fooling around on me, she warned, I wouldn't hesitate to shoot you. By now, Bob knew that she'd done so once before and had even gotten away with murder. She loved to make her young husband jealous, and it especially pleased her when he got into barroom brawls for her. He began drinking too much to escape the hell he lived in. So he was happy that his job as a Marine began taking him away from home. He was assigned to be a burial escort for fallen soldiers, whose bodies were shipped back to the States. He was required to travel all over the country. His wife, of course, hated it because she couldn't keep him under watch. She continually accused him of screwing around on her, and Bob became more unhappy in his marriage. While he was away, Teresa started working as a nurse's aide to earn extra money. She spent the money she made on herself and racked up credit card bills for clothes, trips to the hairdresser, and nights out at bars. The marriage deteriorated, and in 1969, Teresa filed for divorce, accusing Bob Knorr of neglect and abuse. He was ordered to pay $250 a month in child support and alimony in the settlement. But it was only a ploy to keep Bob under her thumb. Faced with a divorce and depletion of his income, he returned to Teresa at her pleading. Soon, she told him she was pregnant again. Their fourth and final child, a daughter she named after herself, was born in 1970. Teresa Marie Knorr would be called Terry. Soon after Terry was born, Teresa split from Bob Knorr for good. He suspected she was cheating on him and a divorce was granted. Bob was ordered to pay $150 a month in child support. She then took a job bartending at a topless bar in Sacramento. It was there she met Bob Pulliam, a 28-year-old railroad worker. Teresa married for the third time in 1971, the same year her divorce was granted. Her pattern of neglect of her children and infidelity in her relationships continued. She left her six children in the care of her husband and others while she went out drinking. Her children were developmentally behind schedule for their ages due to severe neglect. Even though she seemed resentful and burdened by her children, Teresa did everything she could to keep Bob Knorr away from them, although he would try and maintain contact throughout their lives. Four-year-old Susan was bright, but had seen too much for her young age. Listening to her mother talk graphically about sex and witnessing the parade of men Teresa brought around her children, Susan learned about sex early. Teresa became angry when, according to her, Susan shed her clothing provocatively in front of her toddler brothers. Two-year-old Robert could neither walk nor talk and had trouble eating solid foods. Bob Knorr entered into a committed relationship and would later marry a woman named Georgia. Periodically, the children would be left with Bob and Georgia, where they would receive consistent care. They fed the children nutritious meals, gave them love and attention, and allowed them outside to exercise and interact with other children, basic things they lacked with their mother. They would thrive for a time before Teresa invariably returned and insisted on taking her children back. Teresa's third husband, Ron Pulliam, provided stability for Teresa's children who were now between six months and eight years of age. Baby Terry thought of Ron as her father, and he was happy to serve as a parent to her and Teresa's other five children. The oldest child, Howard, was still Teresa's favorite, but it was also apparent that she generally favored her sons over her daughters. She actively turned Bob Norris' four children against him. She told them he was violent and a drug addict, 
and told them fictitious stories about how their father had abused them. Having this repeated throughout their lives, they just assumed it was true. In 1973, Ron Pulliam arrived at Bob's house alone. He told Bob and Georgia that Teresa had disappeared, leaving the children behind. Teresa was a heavy drinker and was seeing other men, he said. When he wasn't home, Ron noted, Teresa took off drinking for hours or days, leaving the children in the care of 10-year-old Howard. Ron had had enough and filed for divorce. But he agreed to help Teresa purchase a house on Bellingham Way in the suburb of Orangeville as a way to get her to sign divorce papers. It was in this house that Teresa began isolating herself and her children from the world. But first, she met and married her fourth and last husband, Chet Harris. Teresa's marriage to Chester Chet Harris only lasted four months, but significantly impacted her children's lives. When she and her children moved into their home on Bellingham Way, Teresa changed. She stayed home more and became almost a recluse. She gained weight and now resembled her mother gay more than ever. She also started dragging her brood to church and Sunday school at Hazel Avenue Baptist Church. Teresa became obsessed with reading the Bible, which she interpreted in bizarre ways. She twisted the scriptures in a way that had her convinced that unlike everyone around her, she was holy and without sin. She decided that the rest of the world, especially people she didn't like and wished revenge upon, were evil. Sometimes Teresa could be kind, indulging her kids, buying them treats, and speaking with them as equals about her strange philosophy of life. Other times, she would fly off the handle for what seemed like no reason at all and beat and punish them. They learned to agree with whatever their mother said, and cherished the time she was in a good mood. They began agreeing with all of her strange ideas and conspiracy theories and made her enemies their own to keep on her good side. She became increasingly paranoid of others whom she believed were spying on her and her children. She controlled her family's movements as she had her husband's in the past, not trusting outsiders. She insisted that her children not share anything that went on in the home with others. Teresa worked as a healthcare aide in nursing homes and hospitals to make ends meet. She began pilfering and stockpiling pain medication, medical equipment, and other items from her employers. Her mood darkened when she drank, and she grew more angry and violent. The children knew that their mother was happiest when she had a man around. The last one would be Chet Harris. When they met, Chet Harris was considerably older than Teresa and not in the best health. He'd had a long career as a hard-boiled newspaper reporter, covering news beats in Pittsburgh, Long Island, and St. Louis, before being relegated to the copy desk at the Sacramento Union newspaper. Chet was also a hard drinker, and had been married a half a dozen times before meeting Teresa Cross nor Pulliam at an American Legion Hall bar in the summer of 1976. She was 30, and he was nearly 60. Within three days of meeting, they became engaged. They tied the knot on August 23, 1976. Before Thanksgiving, Teresa would file for divorce. She had her new husband pay off her bills and begin an addition on his home to update it and increase its square footage. She still owned the house on Bellingham Way. But soon, she flew into a rage when she discovered that Chet Harris collected nude photos of women, including his former wives. He wanted Teresa to pose for his collection, but she refused and accused him of infidelity. But once again, it was Teresa who was stepping out on her husband. He found out and threw her out of his house. She filed for divorce, accusing Chet of trying to force her to, quote, pose for lewd photos. When she'd refused, he checked her out, according to her divorce suit. She also claimed he subjected her to physical abuse. She moved back to her home on Bellingham Way in Orangevale. She became more reclusive, gained even more weight, and spiraled mentally and emotionally. Her children, Sheila, now 11, Susan, 10, William, 9, Robert, 8, and Terry, 6, became terrified of her moods, never knowing what would set them off. She threatened her children with guns and knives and didn't allow them to have visitors, use the phone, or to go outside. She made them listen to her endless rants, a bizarre mix of -of end-of-times religion, occultist beliefs, and stories inspired by horror fiction by authors like Stephen King. But the real horror was going on behind her home's closed and locked doors. 
Her youngest children, Robert and Terry, screwed up their courage one day to reveal to their mother that they'd been sexually abused by their big brother, Howard. Teresa discovered that Howard had been sexually abusing all his younger siblings. She lashed out at him, beating him until he was black and blue. But she then sat down her younger children to explain that Howard was acting out because he'd also been sexually abused by their father, Bob. Not only that, she said, but Bob and his family were deeply immersed in witchcraft. Witchcraft and demons were a favorite subject of Teresa's. Her daughter Susan was 10 when Teresa married Chet Harris. Susan was extraordinarily bright and could read and comprehend material far above her grade level. Her stepfather Chet enjoyed talking to the precocious child about history and politics, and she relished the attention he gave her. Teresa, of course, was jealous of the special attention Chet provided for Susan, and soon accused him of not only being inappropriate with her, but later convinced her children that he'd taught Susan about the dark arts. According to Teresa, Susan had been exposed to witchcraft by her stepfather, who was the devil incarnate. Susan, either to torment her mother or gain favor by agreeing with her bizarre beliefs, began confessing how Chet had actively tried to initiate her into a witch's coven. Susan was bright and strong-willed, and was one of Teresa's only children that would challenge her. She grew from a plain child with thick glasses into a beautiful girl, blonde and attractive like her father. In contrast, Sheila, Teresa's oldest daughter, lived a life of neglect and abuse. She rarely spoke and tried to hide in the background to escape her mother's moods. Having dropped out of school in the ninth grade, Sheila had become little more than unpaid help for the family, forced to take charge of the housework and other tasks ordered by her mother. She appeared mentally slow, socially awkward, and depressed. She was petite and dark-haired, the opposite of her vibrant, highly intelligent, fair sister Susan. Strong-willed Susan was the most frequent target of her mother's abuse. With the boys receiving preferential treatment, although they were still subjected to Teresa's total control, and Sheila easily controlled, Susan was singled out for her mother's fury. Teresa's rages were as unpredictable as they were brutal. When she was angry, she wanted to hurt someone, and her kids were her convenient scapegoats. She had her sons hold Susan down while she kicked, punched, and slapped her until her fury was spent. Susan needed the demons beaten out of her, Teresa said. Chet Harris was to blame. He brought the evil into their home and infected Susan. How did she know Susan was a witch? Teresa blamed her daughter for her excessive weight gain since her divorce from Chet. She said Susan was performing spells to make her fat, while she herself stayed slim and beautiful. Teresa couldn't admit that her sedentary lifestyle, refusal to clean or cook, and overconsumption of alcohol might be to blame for packing on the pounds. Susan did try to rebel against her mother, unlike Sheila. She started cutting classes in middle school and hanging out at the mall with friends. When the school called to report Susan's frequent absences from class, Teresa angrily confronted her. Rather than act contrite, Susan taunted her mother by saying she was with Chet Harris, learning more spells. The beatings increased in frequency and intensity, to the point where Susan couldn't take it anymore and ran away. She was picked up as a truant and a runaway, and sent to a juvenile detention center. When her mother came to claim her, she was furious. She threatened Susan on the way home. Quote, If you think you were abused before, just you wait. I'll show you what abuse is, her mother told her. Once they arrived home, Teresa made her children line up and demanded they each take a turn punching Susan in the stomach as hard as they could. She made them do it again if they didn't hit her hard enough. If she thought they weren't putting all their strength into the blows they inflicted on their sister, Teresa threatened to beat them even worse. Now Susan was watched 24-7. When her mother wasn't home, she left the children to stand guard over her. She was handcuffed to a headboard and force-fed. Her mother wanted her to put on weight. Teresa pulled her daughter out of school, and she never returned. No attendance officers came to find out why Susan wasn't in school. All of Teresa's children dropped out of school before completing their educations, yet no one bothered to find out what was going on in the Knorr household. Teresa told her other children that their sister had a mental illness, so she had to be restrained and not allowed to leave the house. All of the Knorr children were being abused physically. 
They were burned with cigarettes, had knives thrown at them, and were beaten regularly. After so many years of isolation with their violent and angry mother, they came to view all of this as normal. Howard, Teresa's oldest, had grown into an angry teen. Once he was big and strong enough, he refused to allow his mother to abuse him any longer. He once pushed her so hard that her head went through a wall. Howard ran the streets and became known as a local drug dealer. While his younger siblings were still in grade school, he began supplying them with drugs and alcohol, which they gladly accepted. They became dependent on substances to escape the hell in which they were living. The boys took jobs as soon as they could, paper routes, working at fast food joints, or wherever they could be hired to help provide financially for the family. Howard, of course, contributed some of the money he made peddling drugs. But he moved out while still a teen, only returning occasionally when his mother called on him to help her assault one of his siblings. Howard and Susan had never gotten along, and he was happy to participate if Susan was the target. One day when only Teresa, her daughters, and her youngest son Robert were home, she flew into another one of her rages. She took out a small handgun to threaten her children. She had a habit of sometimes holding it to their heads to make a point. While in the middle of her angry tirade, the gun went off. Susan was hit in the chest, and the bullet lodged between her back and ribcage. It's unclear who fired the shot. Teresa and Robert said Terry was holding the gun, likely at her mother's direction. Terry, however, remembered it was her mother who was holding the gun when it went off. In either case, Susan was seriously injured, but her mother was not about to take her to the emergency room where questions would be raised. She had stockpiled medical supplies she'd taken from her employers over the years. She also had drugs like antibiotics and painkillers. She placed her bleeding daughter in the bathtub to keep blood from spilling on the carpets, propped her up, and administered to the bullet wound. Susan could have died, and almost did, but miraculously she recovered over time. She was kept in the bathtub for a month. She was given a pillow and covered with blankets, fed and given antibiotics until she recovered. The bullet remained inside her body, lodged not too far beneath the skin on her back. In 1983, in need of money, Teresa was forced to sell the house on Bellingham Way. They moved into an apartment, and Susan was now handcuffed to the dining room table. Teresa Knorr was obese at 250 pounds, rarely bathed, and could no longer attract a man to provide for her financially, as she'd done in the past. She became even angrier, and the abuse towards her children increased. She came up with another solution to bring in money. She made her daughters, Sheila and Susan, become sex workers, propositioning men outside local car lots. Susan was finally set free after being handcuffed to the furniture for two years, but she didn't attempt to run away, even when she was handed cash by the men who paid her for sex. For one thing, Teresa had her sons checking up on Susan to make sure she was working. Secondly, by this time, Susan's will had been broken. Now she seemed to be trying to earn her mother's approval, and maybe a way to finally escape the beatings, force-feeding, and vile insults she was subjected to daily. She put her all into working the streets and bringing home money to her mother. But this backfired when Teresa began to think that her daughter was enjoying her job too much. She accused Susan of plotting to run away and turn tricks somewhere else and keep the money for herself. Teresa doubled down on Susan's beatings and torture sessions, making her kneel on the floor with her eyes downcast for hours. No one was allowed to speak to her or even look at her. Teresa Knorr was an expert at head games when it came to controlling her children. She would heap abuse upon them and then suddenly make an about-face and talk to them sweetly, buy them gifts, and treat them like they were her best friends. This kept her kids constantly off-balance, not knowing what to expect. It was a way to psychologically torture her children, even when she wasn't doing so physically. She did this now with Susan. In an about-face, Teresa began treating her daughter as a friend and confidant. They sat together drinking and talking like friends. Susan, seeing her chance, asked her mother for permission to leave. She promised she'd never tell anyone about the accidental shooting or reveal anything that had gone on in the home, something Teresa had long been paranoid about, hence the reason she had no home phone and allowed no visitors. 
Susan said she just needed a plane ticket to get to Alaska. She'd start a new life there, she told her mother. She planned to continue doing sex work. Susan said this service was in demand by men employed to work on the Alaskan oil pipeline. She even offered to send part of her earnings back home to Teresa. To her delight, her mother agreed. However, there was one stipulation. She told Susan that the bullet lodged in her back had to be removed before she left. Teresa didn't want to take a chance that it could later be tied back to her gun. She explained that she'd already had a record for shooting and killing her first husband. Even though she'd been acquitted, if the accidental shooting ever came to light, her past could come back to haunt her, Teresa said. She couldn't take that chance. It was the only way she would let Susan go. Susan, willing to do anything to gain her freedom, agreed to let her mother perform the operation. In preparation, she was given a handful of Melaril pills to swallow. Melaril is an antipsychotic medication Teresa had on hand. She also had her daughter drink a quart of cheap whiskey. Susan passed out cold and was laid on her stomach. Teresa then handed 15-year-old Robert an X-Acto knife and had him cut into his sister's back where he could feel the bullet below the skin. It was just under her shoulder blade. To get through it, Robert had to cut through muscle, which was difficult and took time. Finally, they dug out the bullet and stitched Susan up inexpertly. When she regained consciousness hours later, she was groggy and in pain. Teresa gave her painkillers and anti-inflammatory medications, but her condition worsened over the next few days. She became feverish and began hallucinating. She couldn't eat or drink without help and couldn't keep food down. She grew weaker. Her siblings begged their mother to get Susan medical attention, but it was something she would never have agreed to. She just watched as her daughter slowly slipped away, finally falling into a coma on July 15, 1984. That evening, Teresa packed up all of her daughter's belongings into two large trash bags and ordered her sons, William 16 and Robert 15, to pick up their sister and place her in the car. She drove over an hour away towards Lake Tahoe. It was the middle of the night when they stopped close to the Nevada border. She ordered the boys out of the car and had them drag the filled trash bags to the bank of a creek. She then told them to lift their unconscious sister and place her by the bags. Teresa returned to the car and took out a canister filled with gasoline. She doused Susan and the bags with the flammable liquid. She handed her sons a matchbook and said, I'm going to run back and start the car. You light the match, drop it, and run. The boys looked at each other in astonishment after their mother left, but did as they were instructed. They drove home in silence. Hours later, the Squaw Valley Fire Department in Placer County received phone calls from citizens reporting a fire that could be seen from Highway 89. It appeared to be burning near Squaw Creek. When the fire truck arrived, someone had already taken a fire extinguisher and put out the blaze. To their horror, they discovered it was a body that had been set on fire. The Sheriff's Department was sent out to investigate. The victim appeared to be a woman in her teens or early 20s with light brown or blonde hair. The body hadn't been wholly burned, nor had the two large garbage bags found near the victim. Investigators found women's clothing, makeup, and other personal items in the bags. They logged the items as evidence, hoping it might give them a clue as to the victim's identity. They found no identification on or near the body. The coroner autopsied the remains. The woman's mouth had been taped shut and the wrists taped together with duct tape. She wore a sweater, corduroy jacket, and pants, and a yellow windbreaker. She had suffered third-degree burns over 90% of her body. The autopsy would reveal a horrible truth. The young woman, who would be labeled Jane Doe, number 4858-84, had been alive when she was set on fire using a gasoline accelerant. The cause of death was smoke inhalation. Investigators checked missing persons reports, hoping to find a match to the description of the dead woman but came up empty. She would remain a Jane Doe for the next nine years.
Of course, there would be no report made for Susan Marlene Knorr. Her mother had allowed her to die after a botched, bizarre surgery at home, from which she never recovered. She had made her children complicit in their sister's death and the disposal of the body. It's unlikely they knew she was still alive when she was set on fire. But did their mother know? After all, she'd worked as a healthcare aide and had studied to become a nurse. How could she not know? If she knew she was burning her daughter alive, that level of cruelty is evil in the extreme and almost impossible to imagine that a mother would do this to their child. When Teresa Knorr was under stress, she became even more angry and violent. Murdering her daughter and wondering if and when she might be found out pushed her over the edge. She gained even more weight, inching closer to 300 pounds. The boys, William and Robert, found a way to escape their mother's total control by getting jobs. Soon, they stopped coming home altogether. Sheila and Terry had no such luck. Sheila became her mother's next target. Teresa subjected her previously compliant daughter to some of the same abuse she had directed at Susan, forcing her to sit on her knees, calling her vile names, and refusing to feed her, and then subjecting her to force-feeding. Sheila was petite and very thin. However, the constant humiliation and abuse from her mother caused a change in the once silent daughter. Sheila began using her voice for the first time to rebel against her mother. She wasn't going to go down without a fight. She had a real reason for wanting to break free of her mother. Sheila had met a man and they'd fallen in love. When Teresa sent her daughters out to perform sex work, Sheila became friendly with a young man in his 20s who went by the nickname Chief. Chief was Native American and lived according to traditional customs handed down by his ancestors. He treated Sheila with tenderness and respect, something she'd never experienced. When Teresa discovered that Sheila had met someone and was planning to run away, she flipped out. She called Sheila terrible names and now said she was the demon. She beat Sheila into submission and then tied her up. Her sons, Robert and William, were summoned to the apartment. She had them force their sister into a small linen closet where she was locked in. It was June of 1985. Not quite one year had passed since Susan's murder. Sheila yelled, screamed, and banged on the door with her feet as her hands were tied together, but her pleas were ignored. Her children later said they didn't remember Teresa opening the door to feed Sheila or give her water. They also couldn't remember with any certainty exactly how long their sister was left in the closet. Some said a few days, but others said it was at least a week and as long as two weeks. What couldn't be forgotten, however, was the smell. After some time, the apartment was permeated with a sickly sweet scent like rotting meat. Teresa, unwilling to open the door herself, called on her billy boy to do her dirty work. William arrived and peered inside the closet as instructed by his mother. His sister's hands were still tied. She was half naked and lying on the floor in a fetal position. The side of her body closest to the floor was nearly black, where the blood had pooled post-mortem. Sheila was definitely dead. She was 20 years old. Teresa had William take the closet door off its hinges, but it was clear he couldn't move the body himself. They called on Robert to help. As the boys picked her sister's body off the closet floor, some of her flesh, already rotting off the body, stuck to the floor. Teresa brought in a large cardboard furniture box, and the boys placed the body inside of it. They taped it shut and put it in the trunk of the car. Teresa sat in the passenger seat, and she and her sons made the drive once again to dispose of a body. They drove further this time, almost to Lake Tahoe, before stopping. They stopped at a deserted campground and dropped the box with the body at the side of the road before driving off. On June 21, 1985, the second Jane Doe in as many years was found. This time the victim was found in Nevada County. The body was in such an advanced state of decomposition, the coroner was unable to tell with any certainty what had caused her death. Sheila most likely died due to dehydration and starvation. The body was found in a different jurisdiction from the previous Jane Doe, and unlike that victim, hadn't been burned. As a result, the two victims weren't suspected of being connected. Sheila Gay Sanders was recorded as Jane Doe number 6607-85.
Teresa, Nora, and Terry continued living in the apartment where Sheila died, but the smell never disappeared. In September 1986, Teresa became so paranoid that someone would report the smell and what she'd done would be discovered, she ordered Terry, now 16, to set fire to the apartment. Terry did as she was told, but the fire was quickly put out after neighbors called the fire department. The closet had not burned at all, and it was the fire that alerted investigators to the smell in the apartment. Part of the subfloor of the closet was cut out as evidence. Teresa left the area and went into hiding. Terry used her dead sister Sheila's identification card so she could work and become independent from her mother. Teresa's children, the ones who survived, were now finally free of her. The children all struggled due to the trauma and violence they'd endured at the hands of their mother. Substance abuse problems, mental health issues, domestic violence, and even armed robbery were the legacy as offspring of Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross Knorr. Teresa Knorr had been questioned by the authorities about the fire in her apartment, but blamed her son Howard, saying he was the arsonist. However, investigators determined that Howard had been in jail at the time of the fire. When they returned to question Teresa further, she was gone. Her father had recently passed away at the age of 80, and she left the state, taking a job as a home health care aide under a different name. She essentially disappeared. Terry bounced around on her own, numbing her pain and the horrible memories associated with the lifetime of abuse and the murders of her two sisters. She drank and did every drug imaginable. But her spirit was still strong, and she continued to find work, even though she believed she'd never find happiness. But in 1990, when she was 20 and working at a McDonald's in Sandy, Utah, a customer asked her for her phone number. His name was Michael Groves, and he swept her off her feet, asking her to marry him after three dates. Michael was the first person to show Terry unconditional love. When the pain she carried inside became almost too much to bear, she tried to end her life. But Michael saved her, encouraged her to tell him everything, and said he'd be her strength if she couldn't do it alone. She finally trusted someone enough to tell her story. Michael was gobsmacked, but encouraged her to report what she knew to the police. She did, and on September 5, 1990, her statement was forwarded to the Sacramento Police Homicide Division. Basically, nothing happened, a frustrated Terry later said. Her life continued to be a roller coaster, leaving her marriage to Michael and taking up again with an abusive ex-boyfriend. Then a year and a half later, she and Michael reconciled and remarried. That same year, 1993, Terry was watching the television program America's Most Wanted. Crying, she called AMW's hotline and told the woman about her sister's murders. She was told the hotline only took tips about crimes currently being investigated. Terry was upset, but didn't give up hope, asking what she could do. The hotline operator said it would be best to call the authorities in the county where it happened. Terry looked up the number for the Nevada County Sheriff's Department. The person on duty took her statement and said he'd follow up. To her surprise, he did calling the Placer County Sheriff's substation and asking them to check their files for 1984 and 1985 for any Jane Doe victims. Sergeant John Fitzgerald, a Placer County Sheriff's Department detective, had been waiting for a break on his Jane Doe case since 1984. He called Terry and asked her to repeat her story. The more he heard, the more it matched the body found burning near Squaw Creek in 1984. I believe it was your sister, he told a stunned Terry. The Placer County District Attorney's Office prepared a case against Teresa Jimmy Cross Knorr and her sons, William Robert Knorr and Robert Wallace Knorr Jr., for two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Robert was easy to find, as he was doing 15 years in prison on a second-degree murder charge. He'd shot and killed a bartender in an attempted robbery in Nevada. William, now 26, was arrested at his home in Woodland, California on November 4, 1993. He was married and living a quiet life when he received a knock on his door from homicide detectives and was booked into jail. Just over a week later, Teresa Knorr, who was now using her maiden name Cross, was arrested in Salt Lake City, Utah. Her charges included the special circumstances of multiple murder and murder by torture. She pled not guilty. Seven years after the murders of her daughters, Teresa Cross-Knorr finally would face justice. 
The murder trial was held in Placer County the following year. Robert agreed to testify against his mother. In exchange, all charges against him were dropped, except for the charge of accessory after the fact, for the murder of his sister Sheila. He was sentenced to three years, which he was allowed to serve concurrently with his previous prison sentence. When Teresa learned her son had made a deal with prosecutors, she agreed to plead guilty, stipulating that the DA not seek the death penalty. The court accepted her guilty plea, and she was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences to be served at the California Institute for Women in Chino. In July 2019, she went up before the parole board for the first time, but was denied. Her second parole hearing is scheduled for July 2024. William Knorr, 17 at the time of the crime, was sentenced to probation. He was required to attend court-appointed therapy as part of his probation requirements. Police also investigated Teresa Knorr for the death of her older sister, Rosemary. Rosemary Norris was found strangled to death in 1983. Her body was dumped in a remote area in Placer County. Too much time had passed, and they could find no evidence supporting their theory that Teresa was involved. Rosemary's murder remains unsolved. In 2010, a movie titled The Afflicted, based loosely on this case, was released. As of this writing, it can be streamed on Tubi TV and Amazon Prime Video. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. That was quite a story, and there are so many more details that I couldn't cover in such a short amount of time. Join us on Patreon for a discussion to ask questions and share your observations about this case. I'll be joining you by video on Sunday, November 5th. So if you're not a Patreon member, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to join. If you can't catch me on the 5th, you can watch the pre-recorded version afterward. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Go to our website, truecrimepodcast.com, to find all the information about the show, listen to episodes, and grab all our social media links. Until next time, happy Halloween, and be good to one another. <laughs>